Welcome to Cow Talks. I'm Chris Pravat, Beef Cattle and Forage Economist at the University of Florida. And I am Marcelo Valau, Forage Extension Specialist with the University of Florida. And this is our podcast, where we dive deep into the main topics affecting livestock and forage production in the southeastern United States. From the mainstream media to new technologies straight from our research stations. From cattle prices to international trade. From our pastures and beyond. Join us on this journey as we tackle the main issues affecting our producers and the sustainability of our production systems. All right, so let's go ahead and get started um, with this week's uh, Live with Chris and Marcella. We have eight special guests with us today. We've been working on a special project this week with some extension specialists from around the southeast, and we just wanted to bring them into our conversation and uh, talk a little bit about what we've been discussing. With that, I'd just like to briefly um, allow each extension specialist to introduce themselves. Hey, everybody. I'm Deidre Harmon. I'm the livestock specialist at NC State. Uh, university. I'm not located on campus. I'm actually off campus at an off-campus research station in the western part of the state, about 30 minutes from Tennessee. So I'm Justin Reinhardt, um, a beef cattle extension specialist at the University of Tennessee, and I'm also located off campus. So I'm not in Knoxville. I'm at the Middle Tennessee Research and Education Center in Spring Hill, just south of Nashville. Uh, primarily work with reproductive management. I'm Jennifer Tucker. I'm with the University of Georgia, and I'm located at the Tifton campus, and I do beef nutrition and forage management research. I'm Katie Mason. I am at the University of Tennessee as an extension beef cattle specialist, and I'm located on campus, um, and I also focus on beef nutrition and grazing. Awesome, and we have Brill Sellers with us today. Yep, we've got Dr. Again. Brent Sellers with us again, our superstar guest. Superstar. And uh, we also have Walton Stewart from the University of Georgia. But uh, just to kick, get things kicked off today, um, Dr. Reinhardt, whenever you're, you know, uh, working with producers, working with some county agents, what are some key areas in terms of, of you know, maybe some, some pitfalls or some mistakes people might be having with uh, reproductive management? technologies or, or just their breeding season overall? Yeah, so one of the biggest things that I focus on when I start uh, working with a producer or uh, helping an agent uh, work with a producer to focus on improving their reproductive management, uh, the, the very first thing I key in on and start asking questions about is the breeding season. And really, um, I, should, I should be more nuanced about how I approach that. I should say the calving season because um, you can manage them a little bit differently, the breeding season and the calving season, and create some differences there. And we can get into that if we need to. But uh, fundamentally, in reproductive management, you have to start with uh, with honing in on the calving season and the calving distribution within the calving season, and that'll have more impact on um, well on your potential and all the other steps to to generate revenue and to decrease cost. Uh, so that's where I start, and uh, we still have plenty of uh, room to work on that with uh, a lot of the producers that, that we work with. So um, when I talk to our agents about trying to improve overall reproductive management in the beef cattle herds in their counties, uh, then that's that's where we start. And then as we get into some producers that have done a good job with that, then start layering in some uh, advanced or some applied reproductive technologies like uh, synchronization for natural service, synchronization and AI, embryo transfer, those kinds of things would come later after that. Absolutely. That's great. Um, another question for the University of Tennessee. Um, 
So whenever you're talking with county agents or producers about, uh, you know, common things to feed a cow, you know, where do you typically go with conversation whenever, you know, they're really unsure about what they need to be supplying to their to their cow herd? Yeah. So um, first, I try to, to get kind of a base information about what their goals are. So what is the, the stage of production of the cow that they're feeding? It's a cow-calf state, so typically we're thinking about winter feeding. Uh, but we do have some some people who want to creep feed or, or stalkers and even some finishers. And so I try to gather information about, you know, what is the goal and then start to, to determine what kind of feedstuffs fit economically in their feed program um, based on what's available to them in their region. So Tennessee um, kind of is different in the western part of the state versus the eastern part of the state and central. And so evaluating what feedstuffs are, are first locally available and then what's going to meet their nutrient requirements based on, again, their stage of production or whatever their production goals are. Um, and then just kind of having a, a general talk about how they want to deliver that supplement. So um, I like to think about reduced labor feeding or ways to make winter feeding more efficient. Um, so once we've identified what their supplementation program might look like from a nutritional standpoint, then talking about kind of the labor standpoint and, and feeding management. Absolutely. Now, Deidre, um, you work in a little bit different of production set setting in the northwest corner of North Carolina. Um, I'm just curious. Uh, first, what's your favorite forage? <laughs> and uh, and second, y'all are kind of a hybrid age, uh, hybrid specialist where you have animal science and agronomic background. Can you can you uh, can you talk a little bit about that interaction between your two areas? Yeah, so I guess to answer the first question, my favorite forage is crabgrass. And the reason that I really like crabgrass is, is I'm, I'm kind of in an, a unique area in the western part of North Carolina. Um, our terrain is, is very mountainous terrain. Uh, a lot of our terrain we can't really get on with large equipment, tractors, drills. So we really have to take advantage of the forage base that we already have. In Western North Carolina, which is tall fescue. Now, I know that that in Florida and, and the southwestern, or I guess South Georgia, y'all don't really have fescue down that way. Um, but but we got to take advantage of that fescue in the springtime when we've got a lot of forage growth, and in the fall time when we can stockpile that forage to limit the amount of hay or other feed resources that we are feeding our cattle. But the problem is, kind of in that summertime frame, even though we're in a really cool area. Um, that summer slump and fescue production is a really big challenge for us. So we're trying to fight, figure out how we can, can efficiently graze cattle on forage. And really the answer there for us has been uh, summer annual forages and particularly crabgrass. We've got a lot of producers that's starting to intercede uh, crabgrass into some thinning stands of fescue. So that really allows us to one, have an, uh, a higher nutritional claim for our forages, for our cattle, and two, that helps us be able to have more forage available during that time when we normally wouldn't have forage available. Absolutely. Now, let's switch, uh, change the conversation to uh, University of Georgia real quick. How do you see producers implementing these two legumes into their production systems in the southeast? And, and can you talk a little bit about potential TDN and crude protein quality of these two forages? So, yeah, so I've been working a lot with the integration of alfalfa into different systems, but specifically Bermuda grass, uh, just from where I'm located in Tifton. Um, I've tried some work where we've integrated uh, alfalfa into a, a tall fescue systems, but we found that if it's a strong, robust stand that's growing, you're not going to get that alfalfa. 
to uh, to really establish well. So we don't really see that mixture working unless you're doing it at an establishment stage. Whereas we're using these legumes as an option to uh, increase or extend that grazing season um, for our warm season side. So um, we do have some producers that have put it into bahia grass, and we don't see that it is quite as successful in a bahia grass system. Uh, one being the fertility required for the alfalfa, uh, but the other being that if you improve the fertility or that that baseline in that behavior grass system, you created a pretty significant side that it's just not going to break through. So it's just, it doesn't marry quite as well as alfalfa and Bermuda. Um, and I, I know Chris is really excited about the red clover work we've been doing. Uh, so we actually looked at red clover as an alternative to the alfalfa Bermuda grass system as something that is a little bit easier to establish or maybe maintain or grow compared to the alfalfa. Um, and we did the same planting on a 14-inch row space, but we used the uh, Bardura red clover that was developed out of Florida. Uh, we've been really impressed with it because we have seen that it's perenniated. So we've been able to have it there for two years, which we did not expect. You know, red clover acts as an annual. It shouldn't last that long. And we've been really impressed with it. Now, red clover is not used widely across the deep south. Um, I grew up in Kentucky. We have red clover everywhere. Um, but it's not used widely, but we're really starting to see a big advantage in that system. And when you compare, uh, we had a third, a three, a four and five-year-old alfalfa stand. So when you compare that production to the red clover, it was comparable. If we had a brand new alfalfa stand, uh, we should expect that those yields would be higher uh, than that red clover. But we've been pretty, uh, pretty pleased with that. And really from a quality standpoint, you know, that alfalfa and that red clover just elevate that stand. Uh, pretty significantly. Um, so we're, we're pretty excited about the, uh, the opportunities there and the fact that you can take a piece of land that you could use essentially for four months, maybe out of the year. And, uh, you know, we get up to eight cuttings across the season uh, with our alfalfa mixes. So. Uh, in Florida, we always talk a lot about the crimson clover, which is uh, normally easier to, to establish our bigger seed. Our semi saws are very poor, so it's hard to get those legumes established. Not even talking about alfalfa uh, in any other place other than the some place in the panhandle. So have you had any experience with uh, crimson clover there too? So crimson is the go-to clover, um, especially even in the panhandle, um, South Georgia, pretty much throughout the state of Georgia, I would say Alabama as well. Um, you know, crimson is that go-to and everybody wants Dixie. They want that reseeding uh, crimson clover that you know, it's going to have that hard seed in the mix. So you get it for multiple years, even though it's not actually perenniating. It's just seed that didn't germinate the first year. Uh, and so, you know, it is one of the go-to, but it's also pretty expensive when you start to look at the price of buying crimson clover seed. Uh, and it is essentially a one and done with the exception of that hard seed. And so, you know, we're trying to find something that you can actually get multiple harvests out of. And with the red clover that we've been using, uh, we, we get multiple cuttings and we'll get all the way to flowering stage multiple times throughout the season. Whereas crimson clover, you know, you get that growth, you get that pretty flower. And then once you, once you mow it, it's done for the season. So it's not really making a contribution. Um, I don't think that we'll ever get a transition away from crimson clover because it's a great forage. It's a, a really good opportunity, but you know, it's one of those, it's, it's already a, a grasped concept that people use it. So. So it's interesting that, uh, well, this, the whole Southeast is basically, uh, mostly cow calf states. I think, especially when you go up, upper, upper Georgia and then into Tennessee, Tennessee and North Carolina, you have a little more of the backgrounding phase. 
And one of the things that we miss a lot in Florida is that the background because we win those caps and we go ahead and get them out of there because we don't have or we believe we don't have that quality forage uh, here. How is that sequenced there? So most of your cow-calf operations, I mean, probably in that cow fascia, uh, many times, in fact, in cow fascia, as we've been, uh, been discussing, how does that sequence go into into the stalkers and what type of forage resources are normally those people's those people using those producers using to, to take the next step both replacement heifers or or backgrounding stalkers yeah so i can go so in north carolina uh, we're primarily a cow calf state but we're primarily fall calving and so that means that our, our producers are calving september october um they're weaning them around about right now so we still have a lot of fescue growing in our, our state so uh, those producers who are going to wean their calves off and not take them straight to market, but they're going to background them or, or uh, uh, you know, raise their own replacement heifers, they're going to go straight on fescue. Um, we do have some producers that are uh, have a, a summer annual, winter annual rotation, and that's that's probably uh, the best case scenario for putting those stalkers and get some good gains on it in North Carolina would be to have kind of that summer annual where you can get them off that that toxic. Uh, Kentucky 31 fescue, um, and then of course in the fall they'll come in and, and establish some some cool season annuals. And and talking about crimson clover, we don't have a lot of adoption of crimson clover in North Carolina, and I'm not exactly sure why. We've got more crimson clover as you go into eastern North Carolina, but in the western part of the state, it's it's pretty much non-existent, which is really interesting compared to what the rest of the, the southeast is doing as far as as winter annuals. And Kentucky as well. Kentucky is red clover, white clover. Yeah, red clover, white But when you get clover. into right. Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Florida, it's crimson. That's right. And our primary uh, uh, small grain is, is wheat as well. Awesome. So we just had Dr. Lawton Stewart join us um, from the University of Tennessee. Oh, Georgia. <laughs> and um, and uh, Lawton, you work a lot with byproduct feedstuffs. Uh, can you tell us just a little bit about uh, some of your interaction with clientele with some byproducts that are commonly used in the state of Georgia? Sure. So in, in Georgia, um, now we do a lot of byproduct feedings. Uh, we do a lot of things of just based on availability. Obviously, we do a lot with our soy hulls, corn gluten. Uh, distiller grains not quite as uh, available as it used to be. Uh, a lot of whole cotton seed. Do a lot with whole cotton seed and it's used uh, ability to use, especially questions about bulls. Uh, those types of things. So it's it, the neat thing about byproducts is once you think you've heard of everything there is to feed the cattle, there's always something new that people come up with. Everything from tomato paste to peanut butter, name it. How much variability is there in terms of the quality of some of these byproducts? Not not necessarily the ones that have been damaged, but just just you know our normal byproducts that we're we're purchasing. Sure. Yeah, there's there's some of them I think are pretty consistent, something like soy holes. I, I for the most part, say it's consistent. But uh, one, for example, corn gluten, I think we're seeing more variability, especially from a protein standpoint. Yeah, if you looked at the NRC value, it's in the low 20s. Uh, but we did a, somewhat of a survey a couple of years ago. Where we just over a six month period got spot samples from one of our feed meals and with range between 15 and 18 percent but we never did get over 20 percent protein okay that's big so uh yeah it's something if you're feeding yeah. it thinking you get 23 percent yeah. you're not getting it then you could create some protein yeah. deficiencies because whenever i'm you know potentially making uh a recommendation on potential feed stuff i'm still using the nrc yeah. which is 21 22 yeah. um for uh corn gluten so 
But it goes back to the value of beat test from time to time just to yeah. see what you're doing, especially on some of these like gluten that can be variable. Yeah, as much as we recommend the soil tests and some forage tests, we also got to be thinking about these feedstuffs and not just taking what the historical reference is sure. as, you know, valid. Yeah, I always tell people we can probably take the historic value of corn, but if you get some of our byproduct feeds, it's probably best to yeah. test it from time to time, do some spot checks just to make sure. Kind of on that too, and it, this is not known as much about nutrition. I'm always interested to hear things like uh, – talking about with soil pellets that the lab analysis TDN, it might be different than what the realized fed TDN is. Is that correct? Or is there anything to that with these other feeds? So if you get a, a TDN analysis of 68% um, on soil pellets, but you might actually in the, the uh, fermentation process get something like a 72 or something. Sure, and and I think that goes to if you think about how TDN is, it's an equation. So we're estimating based on another estimation. So there's room for variability. Depends on what equation the lab is using. So there is some of those things that can create variability. Uh, and then also you think about the rumen kinetics, the dynamic and the rumen of if we're feeding the majority fiber diet. You know, Dale Rankins will always say that soy holes has as good or better value as corn from an energy standpoint and the right type of diet if we're feeding it correctly. Yeah. So, yeah, there is some of that because, you know, we'll get some whole cotton seed um, analyzed and, and the lab in University of Georgia is based off of crude fiber and protein, so it does not take into consideration fat. Mm -hmm. So that does is something we have to take into consideration of how are they actually measuring the energy value. And I just remember as you were saying that, I, probably what I was thinking on the soils is that you enhance the use of a forage if you're feeding it as a supplement to a forage. So it's not actually a difference in the TDN and, and the, the feed. It's just how it's used in that sure. diet, like you're saying. Yeah. Sure. So you got a fiber-based, a complete fiber-based ration. Yeah. So you create some efficiency in the room. And There's two things you said, Dr. Rankin's there. So he's got three studies that show that with the soy holes versus the corn over, I guess it's probably over 10-year period. He looked at it three different times and he got comparable gains with soy holes and corn mm -hmm. um the other thing is uh so we talk a little bit about uh you know we really get into tennessee talking about really backgrounding more than stockering for the most part um and we get into some really really high ration rates where it may be over one percent of body weight you know what kind of adjustment period is we get into some higher ration rates do we need to, to producers need to be thinking about now, when you say higher rations rate, are we talking about soy holes? So going from a, a you know, cow-calf, moving them straight off cow-calf into a stockering backgrounding phase. I was just talking about byproducts as a whole. I think, you know, it kind of sometimes can uh, flip the system just a little bit. Depends on what type of ration. So if it is a fiber-based ration, there's less transition needed necessarily. Uh, and there's two, two components there. What's in the ration and how much are you wanting to feed? If we're at 1% or lower, there's not as much of a true transition period if we're in that fiber-based ration. Mm -hmm. If we're getting corn in that ration, something starts to ask when we got to be careful with the transition period. Absolutely. Uh, and you know, I typically say if it's majority corn or a starch-based feed, that if we start out with about two pounds a day and then just try to step them up slowly, about a pound or two every other day, that slowly helps that rumen change from that fiber-based when they were on the grazing situation with their mama into a true eating out of the feed bunk situation with the starch-based ration. So maybe, so is that a, a two-week period, you think, as we're increasing that 
search base here. So uh, again, I guess it depends on how much, what that diet is. So yeah. if, we're, if we're just a partial diet, like a 1%, one to one and a half, probably a one and a half, two weeks is, is enough. But yeah. that's when we're starting pushing up towards 2% of the body weight, which is almost like a full feed. Yeah. Then that's where we slow it down to a three, maybe a four week, depending on what their background is. They're, they're accustomed to eating out of a trough, those type of things. Because then you have to take that into consideration too. Have they ever eaten out of a trough? Are they fine in the trough? I think as any as any management decision, but really a lot of it is comes down to, to the dollar figure, how much it costs. And especially now with high cost of commodities and even super high cost of byproducts we've been talking about, I mean, there is a renewed interest on forage and making sure that forage system works well. I mean, we're all forage cattle people, so we always have that in mind, but uh, I think there is a renewed interest with producers and also pay quality. Because uh, if we cannot buy some good quality supplement to bring that production, the productivity up, you can relay more on quality. And Chris and I always talk about, okay, cow, cow hay or get good quality hay or get cow hay and get some supplementation. And sometimes uh, concentrate supplementation in cow hay, it makes sense financially, but it seems like we're getting towards a, a tipping point here. So see a good, good opportunity for, for producers using that good quality hay uh, in their operations now as prices of commodity go up. So Didra, you mentioned that uh, annual forages, summer annuals are one of the interesting forage systems to work on for, for the summer in North Carolina. Uh, any preferences? What are the managements and what, what species are you all using and what type of gains are you, you looking into in those annuals? Yeah, so so crabgrass is kind of my, my big focus right now. Yeah, my go-to. And from, from a management perspective, comparing crabgrass to probably sorghum seed and grass or pearl millet, um, it's probably more easily managed because you don't have to quite you know stay on top of the grazing. Sorghums and millets can really get ahead of you really fast and you can start going downhill really fast. Um, so, so from just a grazing management, it's, it's a lot easier for producers who, who don't really have a, a high level of grazing management in their toolbox to be able to utilize it. And so kind of quickly, two of the projects that I'm currently doing with crabgrass, I've, I've had a lot of extension agents in North Carolina ask, well, you know, what variety of crabgrass should we be planting? And I get tired of saying, I don't know what the, the right variety is because nobody's done that work. So we're trying to do a crabgrass variety trial in North Carolina right now looking at establishing all the varieties of the crabgrass, either no-till drilled in or broadcasted in. And so our first year of work, we didn't really see any differences in the different varieties of, uh, from a yield standpoint. And so the second project that we're also working on is, I, mean, I already mentioned that we've got a lot of producers that are uh, interceding crabgrass into the, some of their thinning fescue pastures. And so then in the fall, they're stockpiling that grass to graze later. And so the question has been brought up a lot of, well, can, can you, stockpile crabgrass like you can tall fescue. And so this past year, we tried to look and see what happened to the quality of crabgrass, um, you know, as we progress from September to October, November, December, because most of our producers are going to stockpile fescue starting September and October and not graze it till maybe November, December, January. And so we stockpiled the crabgrass, started harvesting it the 1st and 15th of every month from September to December. And we found that TDN dropped pretty drastically, but crude protein um, didn't drop quite as, as much as TDN did. And we still, even in December, had TDN, or crude protein of like 10.5-11% in our crabgrass. So pretty good stuff still. Um, the only thing about it is it seemed to lose a lot of leaf the later we got into the, mm -hmm. the fall or winter period. Um, but we're going to do that for another year to really see what happens with that. We're getting a 
pretty long season with that crabgrass, which you would not be able to to get with sorghum or that's, sorghum that's right. That's right. And then with the sorghums, you've got kind of the prussic acid concern when it when you have a frost that a lot of producers are really hesitant to plant summer annuals just from the prussic acid and the nitrate standpoint. Um, but I think with some grazing management techniques that that those can be avoided and and Really, we're losing more to the fear of prussic acid and nitrates than we are to, to the actual prussic acid. You tried to stockpile the, the crabgrass. Do you, um, get much, or do you think you'd get much waste from it lodging or bolting, whatever you call it? Yeah, I, I think so. It, it actually became, as the season progressed and the fall winter came about, it was it was harder to, to sample it because of kind of the lodging. And then crabgrass will actually root at every node on the plant so there would be a lot of material that was on the ground because it was lodged and, and developed roots and so there was a lot of material there that we probably didn't collect and couldn't graze because of that that factor of how that plant grows so how does crabgrass do like so back to 2018 for um for north carolina how does it do in standing water in standing water yeah, so last year was extremely wet. Actually, it's been really wet the last three years. Okay. Um, I got stuck with my harvester in mud in August trying to harvest crabgrass, which is something I've never experienced before. And I think that it was it was kind of weak because of, of all okay. the rain. Um, it is a summer annual, so it really likes sunshine. We had a lot of cloudy days, a lot of rain, and it just it looked weak is the best way to yeah. describe it. And I think our yields may have been decreased last year because we had so much rain. And, I mean, there was... 10 days at the time that we didn't see the sun. So it's more the high and dry crop rather than uh, yeah, what we're going to be planting yeah. in those low areas. Yeah, that's right. We've talked to several producers that use it as kind of weed management deal in their high use areas, hay feeding areas that it's good or just good. But that, that's probably a pretty common thing, but it seems pretty handy. Yeah, the, the, the summer annuals in general are, are good to go back in those hay feeding areas that we've had a lot of damage, especially the last three years in North Carolina. They've been so wet. Um, and and crabgrass is a prolific reed seeder, so if you let it go to seed in the fall, it'll drop seed, and, and it should kind of rejuvenate itself for the next year. Um, we like to, to say to maybe do plant crabgrass for a couple of years to get that seed bank really built up before you just let it go. So, Brett, we got a question for you on planting Vermeer grass hay fields. Uh, what's our weed management strategy for uh, beginning this Vermeer grass hay field? So, within 10 to 14 days, Weed master, pint, pint and a half per acre. Even if they don't see weeds, that's the biggest comment I get. Like, I didn't see any weeds, I didn't spray, and then a week later they have weeds like crazy. So the weed master will provide a little bit of residual, believe it or not, because on bare ground, you do get some residual from dicampa. So that would be why we're using that pint to pint rate uh, early. If they miss that window because they get rain or it's too windy or whatever, we can delay. 14 to 28 days and come out with Outrider and Weedmaster together. That'll help pick up the sedges because 14 days, they're probably going to get some sedge emergence. So they're going to need the Outrider to pick up the sedges. Jennifer mentioned uh, baleage. And uh, you have, you just recently finished a very good material in baleage from UGA. And we don't have a good material like that. So I want to talk a little bit about your research in baleage and what resources you have and how our agents can access and use it. Um, so I guess most recently the research we've been doing, um, I, I did a three-year study with alfalfa Bermuda grass mixtures uh, under baleage harvesting, uh, and then we followed up with the red clover uh, Bermuda grass 
uh, in comparison. So we did that, I guess, for five years now. Um, and so it, it was a good benefit was twofold. One is the challenges we have in Georgia when you add those legumes in there and you get that early spring growth and then that fall growth is, you know, you can't guarantee four days in the springtime period without rain. And I would say that's probably pretty comparable to some areas in Florida where, you know, you're going to get storms coming off, you know, pretty regular throughout the summer months. And so incorporating baleage technology really allows us the opportunity to create a high quality forage product when it's the timing is right. So you can stick on that 28 to 35 day interval and you're not having to be as concerned about weather impacts as you would for a dry hay product. And so we really saw a lot of benefits to doing that. Um, I still believe, and I think Chris, you would have to look at the most recent numbers, but we still don't find that it's economical to do for just a pure Bermuda grass uh, or a Bahia grass system that, to do that in the baleage production. Uh, the money doesn't really, it just doesn't make economic sense to do that. Um, but when you get to these higher quality products, it starts to even out a little bit better um, because you get those high sugar products that can really ferment. You don't have to add a lot to them. Um, from the publication standpoint, we did just recently uh, release the Baelish publication. So we do now have that available. Uh, they can find that on uh, the UGA Extension web pages. I'd just like to just provide just a little economics discussion uh, in terms of beef cattle marketing right now. Whenever we're looking at these feeder cap prices, they're solid right now. We've had some improvement over these last uh, three weeks here. So, I mean, we, we're moving in the right direction. We had a rough April, um, you know, a lot of uncertainty in this market with the way corn has been, uh, corn as well as every other byproduct. You know, corn kind of uh, solidifies what these other byproducts are going to be going for as it's the ma major substitute in terms of feedstuffs. So, uh, you know, we've had a, a rough April, but we've been recovering in May and we're kind of looking forward to the summer and, and fall. Fall is actually the preferred time period to market right now. But I know, hey, a lot of our producers in Florida, they fall calf. Uh, they really got to get these cattle out of there by August is kind of the goal. Um, so we don't run into that summer slump. So uh, August is looking like a good time period to market these cattle right now, I think. We're going to be sharing that with our producers based on this CME feeder cow futures. You're looking easily at, you know, $85, $90 a head improvement from where we are today to where we are at the end of August. And uh, that can make a big difference on a lot of our producers' bottom lines. So uh, uh, we've got, uh, do we have anything new on Bermuda grass stem maggot? Uh, anything on control that, that uh, is available today and might be available in the near future? that we know of on Vermeer Grass Stem Maggot. So it's another product from Georgia. I think our our resident specialist on Bermuda Grass Stem Maggot is uh, Dr. Lisa Baxter. Uh, they have a, UGA has a very good management uh, guideline, very good management manual for uh, Bermuda Grass Stem Maggot. Uh, take a look. We have a little bit of that in, updated in our uh, EDIS publication on Bermuda Grass. The important thing is to uh, scout to make sure the fields are clean, and when you start seeing the flies, you need to evaluate if it is uh, feasible to to spray. There is a very short window that you can spray that is economically feasible, especially because you're not killing the larva that's making the damage, but you're killing the flies. So you need to get that uh, that product there. Most of the insecticides, there is a, a high concern with um, resistance, generating resistance on that. So we need to monitor. That's the most important things. Uh, some, sometimes it's economical to, to spray 
with insecticides sometimes it's just better to raise or mow it off uh, get a little earlier hay cutting than you were expecting clean up the field and then you apply your management but take a look at the the, the materials from uh, from UGA on Bermuda STM maggot another very important point there is differences in susceptibility to or tolerance to Bermuda grass stem agate, depending on the cultivar of Bermuda grass you're using. Uh, Tifton 85, for example, is a little better than some of these thin stemmed uh, materials. And also, it's some of one of the researches that we're doing right now with Dr. Rios, we're fixing to release some two, two new varieties of Bermuda grass have been released in the past uh, two years, Ms. Levy and Newell. Newell is very limited in terms of planting material, but we hope to get that expanded this year. And we're working with um, USDA, with Bill Anderson from USDA, and also Lisa Baxter from, from UGA on the release of some new materials pretty soon that uh, we hope to evaluate. We're going to evaluate for Bermuda grass stem maggots. Hope to get some materials that are more tolerant even than those that we have currently available for producers. Yeah, I, I'd just like us to go around the room real quick and and uh, just from from each state talk a, a little bit about, uh, you know, this this our challenge in terms of winter feeding and kind of how, uh, you know, a common management in terms of how we're dealing with winter feeding, um, getting through that 120 day period where uh, there's, a you know, whether it be cool season forages or hay. So, Marcella. Uh, if you would go ahead and, and start just talking about how a lot of our producers, you know, I, I guess this is more towards the northern part of Florida, uh, just yeah. in terms of just because uh, we have much shorter season there in central and south. So. Yeah, so I think I think any initiative program ties in and, and we discussed with Justin uh, earlier today, ties in with the reproduction. When is our cycle? When are you going to cat? When are you going to, to wean? And that's when you need to make the decisions. I think in North Florida, there is a great, great opportunity for us to explore some winter, uh, some winter annuals. One of the projects that I'm super excited about and starting, uh, we're starting now. I'm, I'm starting on it, but there's a, it's a, the Bay has been working on, on that concept for a while and David Wright and many others is the integration with um, um, cropland. So we have row crops in the, in the summer. And then instead of having those lands in fallow, many of those, especially in the eastern side of Panhandle in North Florida, are irrigated. So there is a great potential to use those for winter, uh, for growing winter crops, uh, summer, uh, winter small grains, and graze them. Uh, you can get a lot of gain. You can get a lot of uh, productivity out of that. Uh, one of the comments from, from one of our agents was very interesting that there is some people are indeed implementing those systems where they are they're grazing winter forages. But many times the, the investment, it's on the lower side and there is not much fertilization. The choice of forages, of forage species, and very, very important, the choice of cultivars is not the most adequate. So they end up very short on that, uh, on that pasture. It does not perform well and people just don't like that technology too much, but it's actually some adjustments on the management that are needed to make sure we get some good forage production in that winter. And you can you can get a lot of gain uh, with that system. So that's one of the things I like to promote, and especially some of the folks that are joining us today that I know are going to be in this project with us. We hope to have some good data next uh, four four or five years on farm on integrated crop livestock systems. 
Yeah, so so very similar situation in North Carolina. Uh, you can really divide our state kind of in eastern North Carolina and western North Carolina. Eastern North Carolina, we got a lot of row crops. That is a lot of potential for winter annuals to come in to, to help with the feeding scenario there. We also have some stockpiling of maybe behavior grass or Bermuda grass if they have it uh, in certain parts of the state, certain parts of the eastern part of the state. Um, and then when you make it further west, uh, we kind of replaced a lot of our bottom land that, you know, you would think, oh, it might be in soybeans or something with corn silage. We, we still produce a lot of corn silage in western North Carolina. So again, we've got a lot of opportunity. Okay, well, what can we do with that that bottom land with winter annuals to, to help graze and help reduce the amount of hay that we're feeding? Um, but for the most part, our biggest challenge with winter feeding is, is really the mud. Um, the last three years have been exceptionally wet. One of the research stations um, that I work at usually gets around 42, 45 inches of rainfall. This past year, we had like 76 inches of rainfall on that station. So it's been a really big challenge of one, how do we feed without completely destroying the land that we're feeding on? Uh, two, how do we even find a place to, to feed if, you know, we've got bottom lands that really stay wet when we've got this much rain, uh, but we also can't, even in four-wheel drive, get up on some of our, our steep terrain to be able to roll down a bale of hay. Um, and then we're working a lot with some of our, our state programs to try to get some cost-sharing options for putting in some winter feeding pads, winter feeding areas that can help kind of save our land. Um, not degrade some of our natural resources, but also make it economically feasible for our cattlemen. So that's probably our two biggest challenges that we've, we've seen in the last few years. The only thing I'll say is uh, I do see a lot of opportunity in our state for uh, cover crop grazing. The, the issue is we don't have a lot of fencing around our crop ground as you transition into West Tennessee. So that's an issue. I don't know if harvesting that to, to feed would be economically viable. Uh, depending on what you use as a cover crop, maybe something to think about there. Yeah, and we have the same issue in Western North Carolina too. Most of our cropland does not have fencing around it, um, but temporary fencing seems to really be taking on, once you get those cattle trained, that temporary fencing, that is an option that they can utilize. Especially the cow calf, that would yeah. be easy. Stockers, man, a little bit touch and go. Yeah, so tagging on to that conversation about the mud, uh, Deidre, we, we have a, an agent that's, um, working at the Lewisburg station that has put in some fence line feeders um, and they have a couple of different setups and so um, really just trying to find ways to reduce you know having to go out to the pasture and, and take hay out um, and so hoping to see the adoption of, of that across the state um, and, and it's really neat that they have that set up where they can go look at it and go see the different ways that it can be done um, and then there's been some focus on again repairing those hay feeding areas crabgrass um, and then another thing, this is kind of off the, the mud management topic, but um, I've had some interest from agents asking about stretching stockpile fescue and some producers who are starting to feed hay early. Um, and, you know, in that stockpiling, the time that you would start to graze stockpile fescue, maybe start to feed hay at that time and then, you know, kind of stretch that stockpile a little bit longer. When is it most economical to graze a stockpile versus feed hay? You know, do you wait and feed hay at the very end of the season? Can you do it a little bit throughout the season? So that's one thing that um, I'm hoping to, to start working on here in the coming months. So. Yeah, and to Justin's point back about the repro in North Carolina, we're fall calving. So really, our winter feeding area is a critical time from a nutritional standpoint to make sure that we're getting our cows rebred so that they calve again. Yeah, we've had some producers that started to get some interest in bale grazing, 
uh, where they go out before, you know, we start getting really wet season to go ahead and take that hay out there and then temporary fence to, to kind of graze it like you would a stockpile fescue, but their their bales are already sitting out there. So we've had a couple producers try that that's that seem to to really like it in, in certain scenarios. It can be very expensive is yeah. one of the things that I've seen on it. What's up in Georgia? Uh, so when we talk about winter uh, feeding management, I would say we're, we're kind of a split state fall, spring. I'd say we, we may be majority leaning towards the spring. But what I always talk about is start thinking about winter grazing or winter feeding now. Because you think about what goes into it. One is, is conserved forage or planting. So understanding as we're making the hay, high quality testing, what you have. So then we can go ahead and start. Uh, it, Chris, you'll appreciate this, our risk management, right? If we know what we're getting into, we know what's going to be there. So from a feed standpoint, feed price is going through the roof. If we understand what our forage program is going to look like through the winter now as we're harvesting hay, uh, that allows us to know exactly what we need from a feed standpoint. Um, we've been wet winter. I think we've all had wet winters lately, so that's that's been an issue. I think there's been some, some issues or, or concerns with with the feed areas, trying to get those reestablished or putting some down to, to control the mud going into the summertime. Um, but in a nutshell, feed prices and, and just trying to manage that risk going into it as opposed to wait till you get into the winter and say, oh no, what do I need to feed? I think with uh, whenever we're talking about, you know, this like risk management in terms of think about over a long period of time that we're making hay all summer so we can feed it all winter. I mean, it's it's uh, eight months out of the year. We're doing something with our, our winter feeding strategy. So uh, so it's it's really interesting uh, whenever we think about the different ways that we're handling uh, this 120 day uh, winter feeding issue. Just with hair grass in North Florida, there's times where we're you know I guess maybe two years ago in um, in the northern part of Florida we were feeding hay late September because of the drought issues and and now mid to late October, we're commonly getting into some, some hay feeding situation. So we can easily be feeding hay for 120, 150 days when it's 60 degrees outside. So. One of the things that uh, this group brought up many times was resources. And I think there's so many cool ideas and so many nice projects that uh, each of us are working on. So I'd like to, for you to share uh, one by one here, share some of the, the cool uh, resources uh, could be publications or opportunities. So, uh, thinking of resources that we have, UTV Forage Center website is kind of our home base to, to house all of our materials. Um, we try to have a social media presence, and so that's just kind of getting some of those blurbs of information out, and those can be for producers as well as agents. Um, in terms of additional training type resources, I'm going to let Justin <laughs> talk about those. Yeah, we. Um you know, we, we record and bank all of our in-service trainings and those kinds of things. And certainly would be well, willing to share those around with anybody else in other states. And hopefully on a barter system, we'll get some from you guys too. Uh, we have that, but utv.com is our, like Katie said, our UTV Ford Center, UTV Ford Center on Facebook and Instagram and uh, Twitter, all that stuff. That's where we try to, to keep connection with our producers. And so in Georgia. I would say the same for Georgia. We have the, the ugabeef.com as well as georgiaforages.com as kind of our jumping off places to find specific beef and forage material, uh, as well as going to our extension web pages. 
What about North Carolina? Yeah, North Carolina is pretty similar to the rest of Southeast, I guess. We've got our beef and forage portals. We also have something called the Amazing Grazing website. And if you haven't heard about Amazing Grazing, it's really how you can utilize temporary fencing in your uh, forage and, and pasture-based uh, feed cattle system. So, you know, I'll just, I'll, I'll wrap today's meeting up. Thank you. Thank our guests for being here with us. Uh, this week and just sharing this hour with uh, with ourselves and as well as some of our agents. Thank you for joining us on this Cow Talks podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation. If you have any questions, ideas, follow-ups, or comments, please reach out to us through our email, forages at ifas.ufl.edu. That is forages at ifas.ufl.edu. Or find us on our social media uf.forages on Instagram, UF Forage Team on Facebook, or UF IFAS Forages on YouTube.